Vixen number one, November, December. Who is the Vixen is by Jerry Conway, Bob Oxner, and Vince Coletta. Fashion model Mari McCabe comes in contact with the Tantoo Totem and suddenly gains her long forgotten past, as well as the powers and abilities of three animals. At the United Nations, she attacks the African ruler who murdered her father years ago. That was a synopsis given by the comic reader number 159, August 1978, as part of their announcement of DC titles caught in the infamous implosion. You can read in great detail the circumstances in an article on Dial B for Blog. Just type Dial B for Blog and DC Implosion. The gist is the suits at Warner Brothers and sales impacted by heavy snows conspired to cut DC comic production by 40% in one fell swoop, robbing what should have been the first African-American superheroine with her own title. The story that would have been the Vixen number 1 was published in a bound book of Xerox pages that was intended to secure copyright, published under the title Cancelled Comics Cavalcade Number 2, produced in the fall of 1978. The story begins, Meet Marilyn McCabe, fashion model, businesswoman, a lady with places to go and things to do. In one sense, her story begins today, at a Park Avenue studio near the end of a long day's photo session. And in another sense, it began 17 years ago, in a small African village, to a frightened eight-year-old child. Tonight, past and present will come together, and in that cataclysmic joining, a heroine will be born. Photographer Willie Lockman was trying to sweet-talk foxy model Mari with some delicately chauvinistic jive, which Mari totally called him on as a ridiculous act. No future trophy bride, Mari wanted more than the cover of Vogue. In fact, she worried her temporary but lucrative modeling career might mean she wouldn't be taken seriously when she tried to do good in the world. Marilyn's oldest, dearest friend and business partner, Peg Potamkin, showed off the proofs for her second photo book. It looked to be as big a smash as the first. Next, Mari met with Solomon Samuels, her rich boyfriend and publisher, who'd brought flowers and champagne. The romantic moment was spoiled when footage of the president of the African nation, Damola, appeared on television in relation to an upcoming speech at the United Nations. The press may have lauded him as a peaceful leader and the greatest hope of a united Africa, but Mari went into hysterics upon recognizing the face from her past. In a nicely played moment, panel switched back and forth between the speech and General Katanga, Manitoba, laughing maniacally while firing a machine gun. The woman screamed and fainted. A few hours later, Mari woke up in Samuel's apartment after a nightmare involving menacing shapes, voices laughing or screaming, and a large knife glinting in the moonlight. These same dreams had haunted Mari as a child, and the return made Mari question her memories and her very sanity. She retrieved a tribal totem she had possessed since before her adoption as a child, from a time she had no clear recollection of. However, she could just imagine a man giving it to her, someone she had loved very much. Soon, Mari realized that the man from her dreams was her father, whom she had seen brutally murdered during the bloody revolution of General Manitoba 17 years earlier. Among Simelu, Dantogi's final acts was to give his daughter best wishes and a gift from around his neck. He a child. This talisman is yours now. Wear it always. And one day, perhaps, it will give you the power to free your people. But whatever strength you find in it, you will also find in yourself. Before being butchered, Dantogi also swore to the general that memories can kill Manitoba. You can stop me, but you cannot stop my truth. McCabe had been safe in the United States, with Manitoba unaware that she was even alive. But now Mari swore hers truly was a memory that would kill. Mari and Peg had been friends since school with their lawyer, Andy Jackson Jones. So he was honest with Mari's chances of bringing formal charges against Manitoba. Dealing with foreign powers, there's just not very much one person can do. Who can you go to? The UN? Hell, they rolled out the red carpet for Yasir Arafat. Frustrated, Mari was reminded of her father's words about her talisman and thought she might be able to use it as bait to lure Manitoba into a trap. Still, she needed to know what the thing was exactly and paid a visit to the New York Public Library. Following hours of study, Mari determined that she possessed the Tantu Totem, a priceless piece of African art rumored to possess mystical attributes. Supposedly, a special ceremony would allow its wearer to take on the power of animals. Obviously, this is an offshoot of animalism, the African religion that worships the spirits of animals. Mari wondered if that's what her father meant and felt compelled to perform 
performed the ritual. She spoke in a foreign tongue, performed prescribed motions, and called on the aid of the lion, the fox, and the antelope to let vengeance be mine. Mari let out a scream, collapsed, and was bathed in an unnatural light. When Mari awoke, she was immediately aware of her heightened senses and extraordinary new abilities. The world might not take a model seriously, but Mari hoped an old Halloween outfit could spook a confession out of a general she supposed was craven and superstitious. A creature of shadow and stealth, the flashing figure of ebony, silver, and gold, relished the sensations she felt through her body as she covered 40 blocks in under 10 minutes by rooftop acrobatics. Mari realized that the talisman not only gave her the powers of the animal she requested, but an intrinsic self-assurance to use them. Perhaps this explained her willingness to break into the United Nations, stalk General Manitoba, leap onto the roof of his car, and follow him all the way to New Jersey. Manitoba's men had traced the person they believed to be the last living witness of the Dantogi Massacre, the Holy Reverend Peak, in a nearby monastery. Shock troops already surrounded the building, and Manitoba promised the men responsible for the capture a place of high honor in the New Order. Mori had been listening the whole time and thought Manitoba had taken a page or two from the Nazis. Mori jumped clear of the limo and began making short work of the wannabe Gestapo. From the shadows, she strikes in deadly silence, making no sound but a low, throaty snarl. Her eyes are no longer human now. Something feral has claimed her soul. Meanwhile, the Lion of Hell finally confronted Reverend Peak, who, like Dantogi before him, stood firm against General Manitoba even in the face of death. Preaching instead of prowess? No pleading? You disappoint me. For 17 years you've eluded me, moving from city to city within this overfed nation, like the fox before the lion. Now I run you to earth at last, and you deny me the pleasure of your protests? No matter. For both of us, this is an ending. Greet your god minister. Goodbye. Mari burst through the stained glass window, shouting, No, I won't let you kill again. A sleek silver tigress. She's among them in an instant, whirling and slashing, giving no quarter, attacking with all the primitive fury of a beast of prey. Screams shatter the chapel, echoing the screech of breaking glass. The men have no chance to speak. They can only cry out and fall sprawling like broken dolls. At last, she's done with them. And now she turns, lights catching the eyes beneath her mask, gleaming with a bestial fire. So this is the man god Manitoba, a man god so weak, he prefers to kill old men, while his troops fall like wheat before the scythe. You are nothing, Manitoba. When they hear of this, your men will spit on your name and shame. The Lion of Hell pushed Reverend Peak aside, advancing with his blade on the woman who dared speak to him in such a manner. You vixen! I will split you like a pig! The Lady Fox kicked Manitoba in the face, slashing his flesh, and evaded all his swipes with machete. A cunning smile stretched across the vixen's lips as Manitoba charged her like a bull, timing her diving roll so that the lion rammed into a towering cross. Crushed under the cross's weight as it fell, General Katanga Manitoba's last breath is a gurgled sigh. Limply, his hands groped for his treasured machete and then stiffened. The vixen and Reverend Peak looked on at the passing. Then the Reverend turned to Vixen, who he eventually recognized as Mari. It is regrettable. It all had to end with another death, but vengeance was served this night. Was it not? The following dawn, Solomon Samuels told Mari about the death of the dude who freaked you out on the tube, killed by someone called the Vixen. Mari was surprised the media had bestowed a title upon her. From the sound of it, it seems this old town's got itself another superhero, as though Wonder Woman and Firestorm weren't enough. Solomon found Mari moody, as her mind was miles away, fascinated with the primitive completeness that her new powers had given her. As almost a rebirth, I can't leave that behind. The Vixen leaves, and God help me, I love it. Mari decided to buy her man breakfast. The Vixen is a Lady Fox was written by Jerry Conway with the aid of Carla Conway, and artist Bob Oxner was inked by Vince Coletta. On some of the original art pages, there's some indication that the Vixen might have originally been called the Blue Fox instead, so at least something worked out for her in the early going. Many of the comics tossed into the two volumes of Cancelled Comics Cavalcade were later reworked into serialized backup features or otherwise employed in other titles. For some stupid reason, the Vixen's origin was never offered this courtesy, even though for my money it was a fantastic first issue. The main problem with the costume was how it was colored, not the actual design, and the art was solid enough. What's 
surprised me upon finally reading this lost tale was how strong the script was. When I managed to enjoy these 70s DC titles, I'm often being charitable with regard to their many flaws, finding potential in the germ of a good idea or some cheesy charm. Here we have an interesting protagonist with an unusual job, which would afford her the income and flexibility to be a superheroine while maintaining the requisite physique as part of her day job. Her origins are relatively unique, and she has a perfect motivation for seeking justice outside the law. This was a potent, well-executed story that anticipated the popularity of 80s anti-heroes. If only it had been published, one fellow who probably agrees is Bob Rosakis, best known as the answer man who would answer reader questions in a company-wide letter column feature in uh, 1970s DC Comics. If the Vixen had gone on to issue two, Rosakis would have written a backup strip for the book. This feature was going to star Duella Dent, aka the Harlequin, and she would have been an ongoing backup feature for the book, but unfortunately Rosakis never made it past the script phase on the initial installment. It was actually the idea of editor Jack C. Harris, who apparently had a fair amount of interest in the Vixen. After her debut story didn't make it into print, he tried to bring the character back. The time has come for new power. Sometime between 1979 and 1982, Harris put together a proposal with artist Trevor Von Eden to promote Supergirl and Batgirl as a gender-bent world's finest duo. Never underestimate the power of a woman and create a recurring Defender-style non-team alongside the Enchantress and Vixen. Power. Barbara Gordon, who has taken her natural athletic ability and directed it as an avenging angel of the night. Batgirl. Power plus one. Mystic might unsurpassed. June Moon. Teacher of the occult is transformed into the Enchantress. Power plus two. Inborn ability together with a mystic amulet calling forth the powers of the beasts alter the identity of fashion designer Mari McCabe into the Lady Fox. The Vixen. Power plus infinity. Youngest survivor of the last city of the lost planet Krypton. Superstar Linda Lee Danvers is world renowned as the mightiest maid in the universe. Supergirl. Here comes the Power Squad. New power for a new age. The Tumblr DC Women Kicking Ass had an interview with Jaxie Harris about the proposal. Harris couldn't recall why the proposal wasn't picked up. By the way, the so-called cancelled comic cavalcade number two had a cover drawn up by Alex Savia. The Vixen was featured prominently on it, cowering in a corner as accountants beat up the various heroes that had their titles axed. Okay, don't freak out. My name is Miles Morales, and I'm Spider-Man. Welcome, true believers. Thanks for checking out Ultimate Spin, the Spider-Man podcast that follows a different strand of the web, namely the one belonging to Miles Morales, Marvel Comics, Ultimate Spider-Man. My name is Brian. I'm one of the reviewers over at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com and coming to you from the United States. My co-hosts are Noor from Canada and Taz from New Zealand. Ultimate Spin, the one and only Spider-Man podcast specifically for fans of Miles Morales and Spider-Web. My name's Kyle. My name is Jack. Don't forget to stop by ultimatespinpodcast.com where you can subscribe to the show, find all of our show notes, catch up with our older episodes, and of course, connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're fans of these characters, and if you're listening, you're probably a fan of them as well. We'd love to hear from you and want to know what you think of these characters and their stories. Drop us a line and join the conversation. Two Moros Publishing's Back Issue magazine features a section called Greatest Stories Never Told, which examines various comic book tales that either never made it into print or did so in a form heavily altered from the original intention. For instance, interviewer John Schwerian discussed Jerry Conway's initial plans for his co-creation with artist Bob Oxner of the first major black superheroine at DC Comics, The Vixen. Vixen's first appearance in a title that was actually circulated came three years later in a team-up with Superman. After one more such guest spot three years later, Vixen finally made a minor splash as a member of the 
new Detroit-based Justice League of America in an entirely different costume with a revised origin from the one held back from the public six years prior. It would be another quarter century before Vixen finally got her solo miniseries. Getting back to the character's origins, Jerry Conway was one of the premier writer-editors employed by DC to help glut the market in a bid to pull share away from Marvel Comics. This special talent required coming up with unexplored angles that might draw in new readers. The only black superheroine most people knew in 1978 was Storm. Well before the X-Men were the industry juggernaut they would become in the 80s. Conway saw a need for more and tried to come up with a unique power set for his developing creation. Quite a few heroes had animal powers, but I like the idea of a hero who'd have many different abilities to draw on. I was aware of Animal Man, but that was a character who hadn't been used in almost a decade, and I felt my take on that idea was different enough. I like the idea of tying Vixen's powers to her heritage, making her more than just another lucky accident kind of hero. Conway flew by the seat of his pants, Stan Lee style, so he only had vague ideas of where the book would have gone beyond the first story. No further use of the African background was planned, as the Vixen was meant to be a pure urban vigilante from then on. I hope to write the series for a long time and develop the character, letting the stories themselves suggest future events as I wrote them. However, the Vixen material lay fallow, even as other canceled books from the DC implosion were repurposed in surviving titles. Conway confided, Honestly, I don't think anyone was that wild about how the first issue turned out. Still, I love the character, and I wanted to see her in print anywhere it was possible. The first opportunity was the aforementioned Action Comics, followed a few years later by a DC Comics Presents team-up. Conway was part of the team hoping to revamp the Justice League of America as another young, hip, soapy super team along the lines of the Uncanny X-Men and the New Teen Titans. It instead fell a bit short of the low bar set by Batman and the Outsiders, mixing leftover C-listers with Conway creations both old, Vixen and Steel, and new, Vibe and Gypsy. I wasn't happy with her original look, and I saw this as an opportunity to start over. Mostly I wanted to make her more interesting. The team book's artist, Chuck Patton, was asked to redeem Vixen visually. I do remember at the time that I followed Oxner's initial design for Vixen, but I did not like the overall color scheme. I believe she was dressed then in some kind of light bluish and yellow that I thought was just awful. The goal of the new Justice League was to bring a younger but harder-edged appearance to the team rather than the old guard's primary colors. A Vixen, Conway noted, I wanted her to balance Gypsy's youth and inexperience with a more seasoned, mature approach. Making Vixen's character more edgy was an attempt to bring a different kind of energy to the team. Patton continued, Jerry Conway's description of her stayed basically to how he created her, same as before, but he was open to however I wanted to visually interpret her. So first things first, I needed her looking more earthy and sexy, so I changed her colors to an earthier color palette to denote not only the fox aspect of her identity, but also her African origins as well. I wanted her to be majestic, powerful, and roguish. However, a vixen isn't exactly known as such a creature, so I turned to Marvel Comics for inspiration. I revised her hairdo to reflect a wild animal approach, again utilizing a fox-like image, but I didn't want her wearing a mask and becoming a black cat woman. What I was going for was to literally make her a female wolverine. Hey, I was young and fairly impressionable back then. I was also using Grace Jones as my real-life model for Vixen, and Grace wore many a wild wig in her day. Of the new Justice Leaguer's outfits I created, I was and still am most proud of Vixen. I agree with Patton's assessment, even though it may seem like damning with faint praise, given the company. I really do like the suit, and despite the similarities to Timberwolf and Wolverine, I wish he had retained more of Patton's contributions through successive reworking. Regardless, the fact that Vixen has managed to stay in print for most of the years since her reintroduction is certainly a credit to Conway and Patton. Also deserving of credit is John Schwerian for his excellent write-up, which you can read in full on the uh, Tomorrow's website. It's from back issue number 40. You can read a sample for free, and uh, to download the issue, you can get it for $6.76. This is Black Nerd Power. Greetings. 
Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, one and all, to the little show that we like to call Black Nerd Power. BMP, if you're nasty, uh, I'm your host, Mr. Richard Douglas Jones, and with me are the co-hosts of Black Nerd Power, Mr. Marcus Seabury. What's up, my nerd? Oh, nerd, please, nerd, please. And Miss Kimber, what's hey. happening? Hey, hey, how you doing? How you doing? Yeah, yeah. I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Action Comics number 521, cover dated July 1981. A cover blurb queried. Superman meets the Vixen. Is she heroine or villainous? Night in New York City. It's like night nowhere else in the world. This night promises to be particularly special. For tonight, a she-fox is on the prowl. An African-American woman in a gaudy blue and yellow costume leapt across rooftops. One featured a billboard advertising Superman's appearance at Madison Square Garden to benefit the National Diabetes Foundation on April 10th. A 12-hour charitable engagement. Like the sleek, sly creature that is her name. Namesake. She pauses in the darkness to scent the air. Then, satisfied that she's still on the track of her prey, she springs with the grace of a gazelle and lands as silently as a jungle cat. The vixen sat down upon the roof of a moving van behind Shandor Furs, where uniformed workers were being paid overtime to haul exotic coats from one warehouse to another in the middle of the night. Wordlessly, the lady fox leapt at the men feet first, catching two square in the chest, knocking them into a third. Fifteen blocks away, Superman was being congratulated for raising nearly a quarter of a million dollars in ticket sales alone at the charity event, but the Man of Steel was distracted by his super hearing picking up a cry for help. Superman swiftly reached the dock workers, who were stunned but relatively unharmed. As they alerted a hero to the van theft by some dame in a costume, the Man of Tomorrow pursued the red van as it sped toward the Hudson River. The vixen spotted him in her side mirror. Superman? I can't let him stop me from what I have to do. I'll lash the wheel in place with this scrap of rope, and then try to delay Superman for the precious few seconds I need to complete my plan. The she-fox climbed out of the van and leapt at Superman. What in Rayo's name? Incredible. I'm actually being knocked back. Feel as though I've been hit by a bull elephant. And her claws. One managed to scratch me. What happened to my invulnerability? How can this slim young woman do what hardly anyone has ever managed to do? Superman pulled Vixen's claw off his forehead and, still wrestling in midair, blasted her away with a belly full of super breath. Regardless, he was too late to prevent the furs from being ruined as the van hit the drink, and Vixen's whereabouts were lost in the attempt. Later, Mordecai Mule, owner of the fur company, bemoaned the ruination of his special shipment from India. A black police detective took the Man of Steel's side, warning that before Superman offered any information on the lady perpetrator, he hear information on Mule. It seemed the furrier exploited animals illegally in their native countries to sell legally in the States, and the officer thought perhaps this lady was a vigilante touching the untouchable. Superman was suddenly unsure of her description, and claimed he'd get back with the police after giving the matter some thought. The next day, WGBS head honcho Morgan Edge called top reporters Clark Kent and Lana Lang in to pursue a story suggested by his old friend Solomon Samuels. The African-American high-fashion magazine publisher talked Lang out of her protestation against the relevancy of fur poaching in India, arguing that rendering animals extinct for the fur trade was a threat to ecology and the dignity of life. Kent was suspicious of the timing and noted Samuels leaving the offices with a very attractive black woman. Solomon wondered why Mari McCabe wanted to keep her joining the investigation in New Delhi a secret. As far as most people are concerned, I'm a simple high-priced fashion model, which is another term for an empty-headed beauty. I'll go on this trip incognito as planned. It'll work better this way, I promise you. McCabe's true motivation unrevealed to her only love was to be able to act as the Lady Fox unhindered by her true identity's fame. 
in the overcrowded and squalid Indian metropolis. Clark Kent vanished, leaving Lana Lang in the care of a guide. Lang was spotted by Mordecai Mule, who felt that she may need to be eliminated if she planned to report on his criminal affairs. Mule and his driver were soon following Lang's jeep, unaware that the vixen had also hitched a ride. Clark Kent caught sight of the she-fox lying in wait and began his own superhuman pursuit. Superman swooped down and scooped Vixen off the roof of Mule's ride with the villain none the wiser. Mordecai himself pulled up to an elephant herd, aware that Lang would soon stumble upon his poachers. Mule decided it was best that everyone die in a stampede provoked by a sharpened spear. Superman held fast to the Vixen's behind. Uh-uh, young lady. Not this time. I'm not letting you near me with those claws of yours. The Man of Steel wanted an explanation and got it. The Vixen had driven Mordecai Mule to the brink financially and knew that he would personally supervise a ramping up of poaching to make up for his losses. Vixen had arranged for reporters to be present to catch Mule in the act as a warning to other unscrupulous fur exporters. However, Vixen was worried that Mule was capable of anything in the hero's absence. True enough, she sniffed out the elephant stampede on the wind, and the pair sprang to action, just as Lana Lang and her party were about to be trampled. Super Breath gently corralled the pachyderms until a makeshift stockade could be made from uprooted trees turned stakes. Meanwhile, the she-fox declared, You can't get away this time, Mule. The innocent beasts your men have slain demand revenge. Mule tried repeatedly to skewer the Vixen with a spear, but she easily evaded him with her acrobatic prowess until he was too exhausted to go on. Mule's driver gave up without such a fight. The Vixen left the two men bound up for Superman to find, complete with a note stating, Here's a mule I left for you to skin. It was signed, The Vixen. Also, during the brief moments before being called away by the stampede, Superman had learned that the Lady Fox derived her animal-based powers from the tattoo totem she wore around her neck. Magical powers? That explains how she could hurt me. I'm vulnerable to magic. The Deadly Rampage of the Lady Fox was written by Jerry Conway, with art by Kurt Swan and Frank Chiaramonte, featuring the dynamic debut of The Vixen created by Jerry Conway, the widely circulated one anyway. Hey, who likes Wild Dog? Who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who let the dogs out? No, 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 no. I'm taking this podcast seriously. There's no way that song will appear anywhere in the show or even the commercials. I'm doing this right. I'm FKA Jason of the Silver and Gold Podcast. On September 17, 2016, a new show will be appearing on the SNG feed. Wild Pod, a Wild Dog Podcast is a miniseries covering the DC Comics character that is sort of their answer to the Punisher, Wild Dog. I'll be covering the original four-issue miniseries, the 1989 special, and various other appearances of Wild Dog. Watch for it at SNGPod.com or the Silver and Gold feed on iTunes and Stitcher. Vance, why do we even own that CD? DC Comics presents number 68, cover dated April 1984, introducing Admiral Cerberus, the psychic-powered villain. Tonight, she is still watching. Below her, city glitters like a bed of pearls. She doesn't move, scarcely breathes, a statue sculpted in flesh and blood. At last he comes, the one she's waited for, and she goes to him. Having been perched atop the globe that rests upon the Daily Planet building, Vixen jumped off the skyscraper and landed precisely enough to catch Superman in midair. Riding on his back, she explained, Listen, I didn't wait 
wait on top of the Galaxy Broadcasting Building for two hours just for the view. You have a reputation for hanging around this place. I need someone's help. And since you're the only one in this line of business I know, this isn't the sort of thing you take to the police or the FBI. They'd think I'm crazy. But if I hadn't seen it happen to someone I care about, seen it with my own eyes, I'd almost think they were right. I'm an orphan, Superman. My parents were killed long ago, back in Africa. Because I'm an orphan, I cherish my friends and their families as if they were my family. A friend of mine, a fashion photographer named Willie Layton, has a nephew. Kip is a good kid and we've been spending time together, seeing movies, going shopping. He's like the little brother I never had. Yesterday evening, we were in the fashion circle mall out on Long Island. After treating the boy to a movie, Mari took him to the arcade where he played a new immersive video game called Galaxy Starfighter. While the child was inside the console designed to look like a cockpit to a spaceship, the boy vanished in the thin air. I looked everywhere for him, Superman. I turned that mall upside down, but he was gone, as if he'd vanished into thin air. The mall security office called the police, but there was nothing they could do, mainly because they didn't believe me. Superman did and helped investigate. Superman took the vixen to talk with an investigative journalist he knew at the Daily Planet, Jimmy Olsen, which, like Lana Lang being a reporter in that previous story, was apparently a thing in the Bronze Age. Were there any supporting characters in Superman books that weren't investigative journalists? Anyway, apparently there had been a rash of children disappearing from video arcades in the past two months, usually aged between 12 and 16, and always around a video arcade that had the game Galaxy Starfighter. Apparently, once you scored 100,000 points on the game, instead of flipping it, it flipped you. Apparently, Galaxy Starfighter was tied to a company called Cerberus Exports, owned by a one-time admiral in the U.S. Navy named Carlton Cerberus. The Vixen tracked Admiral Cerberus to his private yacht, the Relentless. Call it intuition. As a fashion model, I banked a career on my instincts, but I have a suspicion I'm going to need all the animalistic powers that Tantu Totem can provide me. The land-born strength of a lion, the sea-born skill of a dolphin. She feels the power. It is a part of her. For six minutes, she swims strongly toward her destination, and she knows she could swim six more minutes without surfacing if it was necessary. It isn't. The Lady Fox scales the side of the yacht and begins attacking armed guards that patrol the ship. Finally, she makes her way into a hold, or to be honest, gets thrown out of a hold. Light and energy blasts her back with a jaboom. Within a room, the 14 missing boys are seen in matching uniforms, strapped to chairs, electrodes running out of their foreheads. Meanwhile, at Cerberus Exports Factory Complex, upstate from Metropolis, Superman tunnels under the fenced-off perimeter. However, security still detects the vibration and begins implementing countermeasures against the Man of Steel. The factory is manufacturing more Galaxy Starfighter game consoles, but it's all robot-controlled. And what's this? Since when does a toy require a military-designed laser cannon as part of its standard equipment? Vixen and I suspected we'd find something bizarre going on at Cerberus Exports, and this just confirms... Kablam! A giant pinion weight slams the Man of Steel into the ground. But come on, this is the pre-crisis Superman. You know that doesn't last very long at all. Meanwhile, back at the Relentless, Vixen wakes up, strapped to a chair, electrodes coming out of her head, or at least through her mask. I don't know how that works. We're treated, quote-unquote, to a chunk of exposition from Admiral Cerberus, who looks kind of like Hunter F. Thompson, except dressed in a white science fiction military uniform with, like, mops dangling off his shoulders and smoking through one of those cigarette holders that only really maniacal supervillains like Red Skull uses. And he gives us his whole story about he illegally entered the Navy at age 15 and how it made him the great man that he was and how military discipline is going to help these boys if their video game MTV generation BS. It has to do with the Cerebro charge, you see. I ended up a special Navy program that studied psychic power. I misled the Pentagon about my findings and they dropped the program, but I continued on my own after retirement. In each of us, there is a psychic regulator, a mental 
mechanism which controls the vast energies our brains contain. By disconnecting this regulator, short-circuiting the control, so to speak, I could gain access to tremendous psychic power, what I humbly call the Cerebro Charge. Unfortunately, mature brains could not contain the resulting release of energy. They weren't flexible enough. Each test resulted in brain burnout. Until we tried children. You monster. Cerebrus slapped the woman. Mind your manners. You could do with a little discipline yourself. As I was saying, children, specifically adolescent males, were perfect subjects for the Cerebro Charge. We were even able to pinpoint the ideal kind of mind we required. That mind must be resilient. Quick, oh, they're good at playing video games, so they hooked them up to the Cerebro Charge thing. I can't even fake interest in this story anymore. It's terrible. Ugh. Admiral Cerberus straps on a uh, red tiara thing that allows him to fire the Cerebro Charge energy blasts. And it's good that he put it on because then Superman shows up and he gets blasted. It's actually kind of cute because it's sort of a one-punch moment. You see, not even the great man of steel can withstand the concentrated force of the unstripped human mind. Now quickly do the woman. They try to burn out Vixen's brain, but she uses her tantu totem to rip free from the restraints that were holding her to the chair. I suppose she was waiting for the stupid supervillain to finish his exposition because that's what you do in these comics. Then she rips the chair out from its moorings and throws it at all the guys in the room that aren't Admiral Cerberus. Then of course she gets blasted with a psychic energy but as that's happening Superman actually turns out to be conscious after all and grabs dude by the ankle, lifts him up in the air starts swinging him around but Superman's still taking psychic blasts so we're to presume that this is actually some sort of remotely evenly matched fight. Then Vixen uses the strength of the elephant to power through her oncoming unconsciousness long enough to unplug the machine and save the boys. And then there's an uplock. It's like, wait, we, we never actually saw Superman beat Admiral Cerberus or anybody beat him. Instead, Superman just tells us that when Vixen unplugged the machine, there was some sort of feedback thing that fried the Admiral's mind, making him a victim of his own device. You know, I like ironic endings. I don't. This sucks. You didn't see his face when the feedback hit, Vixen. It's a sight I'll not soon forget. And then way too late in the story, Vixen starts explaining how her Tantu totem worked. Keep in mind that this is only her second appearance ever, and that none of this backstory was offered earlier on. Superman tries to ask her some more about the totem, but in a final panel we see Mari and Kip back at the mall. They have this thing where she'll name a detective or an agent from a TV show or movie, and then Kip has a name the show that the character's from, and it's stupid. Vixen deserves better than Destiny's Children by Jerry Conway, Kurt Swan, and Murphy Anderson. I've owned this comic for a number of years and I was making a real effort to get as many Vixen stories onto the old Justly Detroit blog as I could. I never got around to doing a write-up for the story, probably because I read it. And now I've read it twice. And that's minutes of life that you nor I are ever going to get back. secret governmental organization operating behind the scenes. Task Force X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? 
The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall! My best guess on my first blush with Vixen is house ads for Suicide Squad from after it wasn't on any local newsstands anymore. From there, it was either her DC Cosmic card or an appearance in Justice League Task Force. She was on the outer periphery of the DC Universe, so she tended to register as the one black woman in superhero crowd scenes or in minor guest roles. By my recollection, she was still mostly a mystery to me in the late 90s when I started collecting the Detroit-era Justice League comics of 1984 through 1986. There was a time from the late Bronze Age throughout the Chromium Age when every super team seemed to have a feline female member, and Vixen especially called the Marvel heroine Tigra of various Avengers teams. Overly flirtatious, occasionally feral, worrying about losing humanity to her asserting animal instincts, all the usual men are dogs, women are cats hooey. Still, Mari McCabe, who I'm not convinced by the way wasn't supposed to be called Mary McCabe since it's short for Marilyn, was the first person of color to ever join the premier superhero team of DC Comics, one of the longest serving non-whites overall, and the only member in its initial affirmative action program who had prior independent appearances rather than being specifically created to serve that purpose. As the inclusive period of Justice League of America proceeded from feel-good New Teen Titans wannabe to a more grim and gritty affair, a pal was cast over Vixen. Her fellow heroes abandoned her team or were murdered by an old League foe in a story arc that seemed to metatextually answer the bloodlust call of former League fans who viewed the new team as less than worthy. Vixen suffered a near-death experience and intended to quit superheroics as a result of her trauma at the resounding failure of her League incarnation. Instead, and very soon after besides, Vixen joined a team so mired in fatality that Task Force X was better known as a suicide squad. Despite spotty appearances throughout the 90s, once Vixen's second team book was cancelled, she persevered until being elevated again to core Justice League status in the late aughts. Literally 30 years after her debut comic was scrapped and well behind the cultural curve, DC Comics finally recognized that they needed better representation for people of color and heroines that were not directly tied to more famous male predecessors. Despite the mild distaste of an African heroine, heroine with powers derived from jungle animals, Vixen is the storm of the DC Universe, the most prominent, long-lived, and respected woman of African descent within their continuity. Her recognition was helped by memorable appearances on the Justice League Unlimited cartoon, which led to further appearances on The Brave and the Bold before bounding to live action on Arrow. Today, Vixen is in the second season of her web-exclusive serialized animated short series on the CW Seed, and a World War II-era ancestor to Vixen has been created for an ongoing role in the second season of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Mari McCabe has proved Proven herself a complex and compelling component of the DC Universe with deserved and necessary representation in their greater media scheme. And as a fan of the Lady Fox, I'm pleased and proud to see her finally receive such broad recognition. If 
you enjoyed the undercurrent music from this episode, please legally download African Lullaby by Eartha Kitt, Foxy Lady by The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Oh Lady Be Good by Ella Fitzgerald, Trot the Fox by Michael Lloyd, Blue Fox Remix by Paul Revere and the Raiders, Who's That Lady by the Osley Brothers, Stone Cold Fox by Dave Myers, Make Way for the Lady by Gordon Lightfoot, Got to Be Real by Cheryl Lynn, and More Than a Woman by Tavares. <laughs> We received direct currents across social media from the 108th Sage, Adam Blackmoon, Ange, Between the Pages, Cash Flag, Chris Sheehan, Clinton Robinson, Comic Reflections, Comics Couplets, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Ed Moore and Ed Moore Jr. across Indie Comics Fan, Teal Productions and Miskatonic, Firestorm Fan, Flanger of the Crypt, FKA Jason of the Dead, Joseph Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Knowing Flame Comics, Longbox Crusade, Mark Sweeney, Matches Baloney, Michael Dabb, Radio vs. the Martians Podcast, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Richard Field, The Silver and Gold Podcast, Son of Cthulhu, Stella, Trekker Talk, Unearthly Visions, Waiting for Doom Podcast, World War Worlds Podcast, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Joseph Crawford wrote, New podcast is AM from Silver and Gold Podcast, Comics in the Golden Age, Legion of Substitute Podcasters, and Rolled Spine Podcasts. Great start to Monday. Where to start? Paul Hicks wrote of the episode Argus and the Flash. Your Flash reading is spotty right at the point where it should have been sequential. Issues in isolation may have been disappointing or examples of what you don't like, but the multi-part Wade stories were great. I didn't like Wally West until Wade made him likable. Born to Run, The Return of Barry Allen, Terminal Velocity through Dead Heat, were all highly enjoyable arcs. Morrison is on record how the Wade Flash inspired him to his JLA approach. But I've long since given up on changing your mind about anything. I still like you, Frank, but it feels wrong. Well, let me allow Darren and Ruth Sutherland to retort. Ruth and I were laughing out loud all the way through your recent Bloodlines episode as you were talking about the Flash. We kept going oh, over and yes. over. That's exactly what we think. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, I'll, I'll cut that part out. I don't want to get you guys a bad reputation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really fun. <laughs> That's well, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, though, because y'all seem to like the more human characters, like more developed in terms of their personalities and their interactions with one another, as opposed to just like a lot of people are just into the powers. They're into the, the vicarious thrill. And it seems like y'all want that more immersive experience where it's, it's a broader form of storytelling. Yes, I would say a character doesn't have to have superpowers for us to be really interested. Yeah, in we like a little bit more developed. By the way, that audio was taken from our recording session for the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast, 75 Birthdays, The Secret Origins of Wonder Woman. We all had a great time recording the episode. I uh, recommend y'all check it out. And of course, look to them for more episodes of Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Coffee and Comics blog wrote on Argus and Flash. Finally getting around to listening. Another good episode. Love the background transition music. Kudos, sir. Dr. Ange wrote, I clicked the first handful of Anima because the concept sounded the best, but I dropped it after three or four issues. I usually don't drop books that quickly, so it must have been direct. I don't remember it at all, and they have vanished. Hearing this makes me think I made the right decision. Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast came back for Anima Attacks the New Titans. I was amazed to find this issue still in my collection. Your enthusiasm for it is contagious. I must give it a reread. Thanks, Frank. And finally, Xenozoic Xenophiles wrote, Lunchtime, listen, the latest DC Bloodlines podcast from Diablo Frank. The next episode arrives in two weeks. We'll be back to Bloodlines, this time Myriad. And we'll also talk at length about the cyborg Superman. I, I wonder why people would think I'd have a special interest in Hank Henshaw. I, I can't imagine what would give anybody that impression. The preceding DC Comics program is not for profit fan production. Any copyrighted material within is believed to be covered under fair use laws with no infringement of rights intended. Leave comments 
Podcasts on DC Bloodlands web page, or Oldspan Podcast site, or the Twitter of the Abal Frank. But only if you must, who are you to give your opinions? In Mother Russia, we give our people the opinions. Shut up and take opinions we give you on internet. It is for betterment of world and make you strong like bear. And please always remember. Spill the blood!